We're going to talk about prayer this morning. I started something last week in this series on the Holy Spirit out of Romans chapter 8 about the Spirit's assistance to us in our prayer life. We're going to finish that up today. And I want to take your thoughts in a little bit different direction this morning to start with to the movie Bruce Almighty. Going from seriousness to, to comedy. The movie Bruce Almighty, if you haven't seen it, presents a Hollywood version of what might happen if God entrusted supernatural power to an ordinary human being. And the key character, Bruce Nolan, played by Jim Carrey, television reporter from Buffalo, New York, rages against God after a series of mishaps. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, Bruce complains, and summoned to an abandoned building, home of Omnipresence, Inc., Bruce encounters God himself, played by Morgan Freeman, was decided to let Bruce try being God for one week to see if he can improve matters any. Bruce uses his divine power capriciously, a magic genie he can command to clear a path in traffic for his, his new sports car or get his dog to use the toilet correctly. He works revenge on fellow employees and on the ruffians who once beat him up to impress his girlfriend. He lassoes the moon, pulls it near in order to enhance a romantic mood, and simultaneously causes a tidal wave in Japan. He hears thousands of prayers in his head all at once. Remember that scene? And he has to answer them. All he's hearing is the ones from Buffalo residents, and he tries to deal with all of these blizzard, this blizzard of requests. And he answers yes to every single one of them. To everyone who plays to win the lottery, he answers yes, thus creating 400,000 winners and diluting the grand prize to almost nothing. In short, Bruce Almighty learns an appreciation of the complexity, for the complexity of prayer as well as a new humility and a sense of inadequacy. Now I want you to think about those two words, humility and inadequacy. These are two great terms which should describe our approach to prayer, shouldn't they? Humility, inadequacy. Turn to Romans chapter 8 if you're not there already. We'll finish up this small text, Romans chapter 8 and verses 26 and 27. Humility and inadequacy. As I read these two verses, those two words come to mind. In the same way, Paul writes, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God is key to our prayer dilemma. It's not so much in the what, where, and the how, as I said last week, but in the what? In the who, right? The Spirit's assistance is the key to our prayers. The reason is quite simple. In our human weakness, in our human frailty, in our humility, in our inadequacy, we simply don't know how to pray effectively. But in partnership with the Holy Spirit, who disables our weakness 
and discerns God's will in our prayers, they can become effective and can accomplish much. As I said last time, that getting a, a handhold on the Spirit's role in this area of our lives helps us tremendously to overcome things like fear of praying in public, saying wrong words in our prayers, of not knowing what to pray for, of knowing how to pray, for example, in difficult situations. This Spirit's assistance helps us not to fall prey to that all-looming discouragement when we don't see answers to our prayers immediately. And it replaces our anxiety over things that we have no control over with peace of mind, right? Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 talks about being anxious for nothing but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds, right? In Christ Jesus. The first thing this text teaches us about prayer is that we need to lean on the Spirit's help. It's one of those overlooked aspects of the Spirit's ministry to us as believers. How does the Spirit assist us? Well, last time we were together, I told you the first thing that we find here is that He disables our weakness. And He does it by supporting us in our infirmity. He does it by supporting us in our infirmity. Verse 26 says, The Spirit helps our weakness. We're one giant frailty, right? One giant fragile frail piece of human being. But the second way that he disables our weakness is that he sustains us through our ignorance. It says, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Our ignorance in prayer emphasizes this desperate need that we have of him as a helper. But that shouldn't stop us from praying, right? We're commanded in Scripture to pray unceasingly. Devote yourselves to it in Colossians chapter 4. And Jesus taught us how to do it. And the Apostle Paul was no stranger, however, to the frustration that we all feel that sometimes you don't exactly know what to pray for, do you? You just don't know. We don't always know. And as I concluded last week's message, I said that we were going to look at a text this week in which Paul wrote of his own frustration in this regard. Notice verse 26 again. When Paul wrote these words, he didn't hesitate to include himself in the group. He says, we do not know how to pray as we should. Now here's a guy that wrote countless prayers in the New Testament. And it seems to me that he knew pretty well how to pray. And yet Paul includes himself in this concept of not knowing how to pray because he made his own mistakes, he didn't always know how best to pray. In this classic biblical text in which Paul has this personal experience with an intensely confounding aspect of prayer that each of us, you and I, struggle with all the time. And you know what it is, don't you? It's that frustration that we feel when our prayers seemingly go unanswered. What about unanswered prayer? Hold your finger in Romans 8 and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verses 7 and 9. Paul says, he's in the middle of, of kind of talking about these revelations that he had. 
And he said, to keep me, in verse 7, from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. Now, we don't know what this is. Could have been a physical ailment. A lot of scholars think it was. But he calls it a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Notice that. Notice the content of his prayer. To take it away from me. But he said to me, quote, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. When God's will in that situation in Paul's life was finally revealed to him, when his prayer went unanswered according to his desired outcome, the content of his prayer seems to have changed drastically. God's answer to Paul's prayer was this. My grace, he said, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. After that, Paul clearly changed his approach. Therefore, he exclaims, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I want to read that passage of Scripture, verse 10, actually, in 2 Corinthians to you out of the message because I really love the way that Eugene Peterson puts this in common language. He says, Paul says, once I heard that, in other words, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. Have you come to that place in your life? I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. He calls it a gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size, like abuse, accidents, opposition, bad breaks, I just let Christ take over, and so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. Let me give you another example of this. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. Moses was brought face to face with the same kind of dilemma in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 3, here we are, standing at the, at the brink of going into the promised land, okay? Moses is recounting things in the ministry that went on beforehand, all their journeys, and they're ready to go into the promised land, Moses says this, at that time, he says, I pleaded with the Lord, O sovereign Lord, you've begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven and on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do. Let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country and Lebanon and then he says this, but because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me any more about this matter. That was Moses' answer to prayer. Enough. 
God said. I don't want to hear about it anymore. This is what's going to happen. You're not going over to see that land. You're not crossing the Jordan. I told you way back when you sinned against me that you weren't doing it. I don't want to hear any more about it. You ever get an answer like that? We do, don't we? Sometimes. You see, our ignorance in prayer emphasizes our desperate, desperate need of the Spirit's help, especially when it concerns our personal desires, right? And what prompts us to pray more than anything? Our personal desires, right? In light of that fact, it would be wise for us to heed the words of this warning. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for. As one man wrote, if you bombard, bombard God with certain particular personal material requests, sometimes there is this possibility that he will let you have them and you will bitterly regret it. Mother Teresa said this. She said, more tears are shed over answered prayer than unanswered prayer. God may not want you to will that $10 million jackpot. He has good reason for that. Because it may very well be that he knows you can't handle it and it will ruin your life. He may be keeping you from buying that new car for a reason. He may know that something's coming up in the days ahead and you won't be able to make the car payments. God may not want that child to be healed or cured because only he can see that not only the child, but many others will come to great faith in Christ through the infirmity. Check your motives for your personal requests. Are they rooted in God's best interest or are they in your best interest? So here's this dilemma which I asked you to meditate on last week and I wonder how many of you did. What would happen if all our, re our prayer requests were answered? Do you think about that? What would happen if all our prayers were answered in the way we'd like them to be? Did the exercise help you realize anything? Philip Yancey put it like this, most of us learn over time that some prayers prove better off unanswered. We have at least one example in the Old Testament that may be a bit enlightened, enlightening for us. It's Psalm 106, verses 14 and 15. And again, it deals with the Israelites and Moses and their journey through the desert. The psalmist said, in rehearsing this, this situation, said that they, meaning the Israelites, had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. And then it says, he gave them what they asked for but sent a wasting disease among them. Psalm 78, 18 refers to the same thing. It says, and in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desires. And he gave it to them. Again, the message presents Psalm 106, 15 in this very applicable way to our contemporary society. He puts it like this. He gave them exactly what they asked for, but along with it, they got an empty heart. 
Leo Tolstoy once wrote a short story entitled Prayer, which he wrote after reading about a shipwreck in the United States in which many children died. And he wrote that story to explore the problem of unanswered prayer. In that story, Tolstoy asks the most provocative question. He says, could it be that unanswered prayer serves our own best interest? Instead of looking at unanswered prayer as the problem, what Tolstoy did was he ponders whether answered prayer may be the problem. Is it possible, he asks, that unanswered prayer is a strange kind of gift to us? You ever think about it that way? In his book, When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayers, Jerry Sitzer suggests that the fact that we pray does not in and of itself make us saints. For our prayers are often imbued with selfishness. When we pray, we pray not only as saints, mind you, but also as sinners. Very much inclined to use prayer to advance our own selfish interests even when we pray out of desperation. Strange as it may sound, he says, answered prayer could actually exacerbate the very problem that is within us, namely sin, that God has acted in Jesus Christ to remedy. To answer these kinds of prayers would be bad for us and unworthy of God. Therefore, God shows us mercy by not answering all of our prayers. If God did answer all of our prayers, he suggests, we would become corrupt without measure, praying as if prayer was like a credit card with no limitations. Right? But if our prayers were answered, now, not some of them like they are now, but all of them, especially our very best and worthiest prayers, we would become monsters, he says, far worse than Hitler or Stalin. Think about that. That's quite a harsh statement. At first, we would be silly like a little boy showing off a new toy that's the envy of the neighborhood. We'd make trees fly in the air, drive our Volvos across the Mississippi, turn the moon into green cheese, he says. In short, we become like Bruce Almighty. There is likely no greater illustration of this corrosive nature of power, including spiritual power, than in the popular Lord of the Rings trilogy. A while ago in my reading, I came across an insightful analogy of Tolkien's exploration of this theme with the temptation that we would all face if all of our prayers were answered according to our desires. Now recall the story. Sauron, an evil sorcerer, forges 20 magical rings. Three for the elves, seven for the dwarfs, and nine for human kings. But he keeps one for himself. And this ring is the most powerful of all. It controls all the others. This ring serves as a metaphor for supernatural power that intoxicates and perverts and destroys. No matter how well-intentioned, the person who possesses this one ring will eventually use it for evil purposes. And there appears to be no exceptions to the rule. So the best among them, Gandalf the wizard, the elven queen, and Aragorn the true king, simply refused to seize the ring because they recognized their own weakness and susceptibility to the corruption. 
They choose to live in weakness and humility, even to suffer defeat if they must, rather than risk the corruption of that the power of the ring would cause. Ironically, this choice is exactly what makes them so powerful. What tempts the best among them, like Gandalf, is the desire to use the ring to accomplish good. Right? That becomes the real danger because however well-intentioned, the power of the ring would still worm its way into the heart and turn it toward evil. At one point, Frodo, a hobbit and keeper of the ring, says to Gandalf, a great and good wizard, you are wise and powerful, will you not take the ring? And Gandalf replies, no, with that power, I should have power too great and terrible. And over me, the ring would gain power still greater and more deadly. Do not tempt me, he says, I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be far too great for my strength. Now, this analogy that I'm making here is not to suggest that prayer is like that ring, inherently evil. So get that out of your mind. But Frodo was commissioned to destroy the ring because it was corrupt. However good the motives of those who tried to use it. Now, prayer is not corrupt. It is hardly the case. Still, there is something dangerous about prayer, isn't there? Very dangerous. Or better to say, there is something dangerous about us once we receive the answers to prayer. God answers prayer for our own good and for his glory, amen? But what we could do with those answers to prayer might turn us into something quite different. You know what would happen? We would write books about three ways or ten ways to make God answer your prayers. And we would conduct healing conferences in which everybody that comes gets healed because we prayed over them. And we would sell prayer cloths touched by us and all you have to do is put it in your pocket and everything will come true. We would become prayer idols if God answered all of our prayers the way we wanted to, wouldn't we? There is no power as wonderful and as good as spiritual power. It is for that very reason that it is so terrible and dangerous, not because of what God does with it, but because of what we might do. Author Gerald Sitzer makes this personal observation. He says, we usually think ourselves to be the exception to the rule, don't we? We do. He says, I know I do. I'm confident in my self-delusion that power would not corrupt me because I think I'm nearly always right, very wise, and so capable of wielding it. So if I had power, I would use it responsibly, never mind the failures of everyone else. And then he says, but it's easy to be altruistic in theory when I'm speculating about what I would do with power if I had it. It's a lot harder to be altruistic in fact. And he asks, is there any exception to this rule? Is there any exception to this rule? I can think of only one. 
Jesus. He was well aware of the potential danger of this spiritual power, and yet he was the only one who could justify having it and using it. But there's something very interesting about Jesus. Throughout his earthly ministry, even he willingly limited its use, choosing rather to suffer deprivation, first as a man willing to do only the will of God his Father. In the desert, when he was tempted by the devil, he did not use prayer to get what he wanted. He did not pray for stones to turn to bread, did he? Even though he's Lord of the universe, Jesus faced humiliation. He faced suffering. He faced death, refusing to take advantage of the power that was and is rightfully his to pray himself out of danger or dilemma. And Philippians chapter 2 makes it very clear. Verse 6. That Jesus existed in the form of God, yet he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even as Jesus approached the most intense and violent climax of his earthly ministry, his commitment to accepting the Father's plan endured to the end. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed these words. He said, my Father, my Abba, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me, be taken from me. That was Jesus' prayer. And though he added at the end, say it with me, but not my will, yours be done. And obviously, Jesus' prayer to take the cup was not answered for your sake and for mine, not for his. Imagine now for a minute if Jesus' prayer had been answered. Imagine if that prayer had been answered. We wouldn't be sitting here right now. And Jesus, by the way, deserved to have his prayer answered, being the perfect man. God was merciful not to Jesus, but to you and me, to us by refusing to answer the prayer of his own perfect and innocent son. Strange as it may sound, we need unanswered prayer, Sitzer says. It is God's gift to us because it protects us from ourselves. If all our prayers were answered, we would only abuse it, the power. We would change the world to our liking. It would become hell on earth. Like spoiled children with too many toys and too much money, we would only grab for more. We would pray for victory at the expense of somebody else. The Red Sox would always win the World Series. Right? You Yankees fans, forget it. 
you would be at the whim of my prayers, see? We would hurt other people and exalt ourselves. He says, unanswered prayer protects us, it breaks us, it deepens us, it exposes us, it transforms us. Ironically, the unanswered prayers of the past, which so often leave us feeling hurt, abandoned, disillusioned, serve as a refiner's fire that prepares us for the answered prayers of the future. If we're willing to look deep into the darkness of our own souls and persist in prayer, even when there doesn't seem to be a reason to. The point of all this is that we need to realize that when it comes to praying, we're ignorant of the details. Is that right? And we need to exercise caution in what we desire. You may recall country singer Garth Brooks' hit song, Unanswered Prayers, in which he relates a chance encounter he and his wife had with an old high school flame that he once had asked God very intensely to let him marry. And as they conversed and reminisced, it becomes apparent to him that had God answered that prayer, it would have been a terrible choice for his life. And glancing at his wife, he suddenly realizes that the greatest gifts in his life are the result of God not granting his previous prayers, but answering in a way that far exceeded his misguided longings and expectations. The words of the chorus go like this, just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean that he don't care. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. St. Teresa of Avila showed tremendous insight when she prayed, do not punish me by granting that which I wish or ask. But I want to tell you the flip side of all this is that God always answers prayer, right? It's not that he doesn't answer prayer. He doesn't answer all of our prayers in the way we would like them to be. He answers prayers all the time, but not always the way we expect. And Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. He said, this is our comfort because God answers every prayer for either he gives us what we pray for or something far better. Something far better. Even though we don't know the what or the how to pray in any given situation, we can be thankful that we have a helper who does. He supports us in our infirmity, he sustains us in our ignorance, and thirdly, he disables our weakness by speaking for us in the midst of our inability. Verse 26 again of Romans chapter 8. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. His, his help is direct and it's personal. He's our personal go-between, our interpreter, the one who constantly pleads our case for us. He intercedes on our behalf, sometimes, Paul says, with groanings which cannot be expressed in words. Have you ever seen that happen before? I remember visiting a man who was dying of a terminal illness one time and his health deteriorated his ability to speak or communicate. 
Eventually, he got to a point where his only method of communication was a deep inward groan and or sigh. And as this was happening, I watched an amazing thing happen. His family members, those who were closest to him, responded to those sighs and groans, understanding exactly what he wanted and what he was trying to communicate. They seemed to be able to distinguish the difference between in the groans and in the sighs and responded with things like a touch or a cool drink of water or gentle caress. They knew what he wanted. There were no words exchanged. But there was clear understanding between them. And that's exactly the picture I want you to get in mind with the Spirit's assistance in our prayers. Words are not always necessary in our prayers, folks. God can do without words because He knows the innermost thoughts and motives of our hearts. And there are times when we are simply at a loss for words. Either we can't express them or there's nothing to say. We can only groan or sigh from within. And God understands those inward groanings and sighs of the Spirit within us and this is one of the most comforting truths of the Spirit's ministry to us, His assistance. Because God knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. There are no secrets to Him. Your heart and my heart is an open book to God. He's there and He knows. Psalm 139 verse 4 says, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Now that's pretty comforting to us if what's in your heart is pure, right? It's pretty unnerving otherwise. And as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, what spills out of us is pretty indicative of what's going on inside of us. So make sure what's inside of you is a good thing because it's going to spill over when you get bumped. Matthew Henry said it this way. He said to a hypocrite, Nothing is more dreadful than that God searches the heart. To a sincere Christian, nothing is more comfortable. Whenever we pray, God knows our deepest desires and the deepest motives behind those prayers. We can't fool God, folks. We cannot fool God. Therefore, do this for me. Every time you pray, and I try to make this a habit myself, adopt the closing words of Psalm 139. To your prayers whenever we pray search me oh God and know my heart try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way you see prayer is not valid just because words fall from our lips the Lord described sinful Israel as a people, quote, who draw near with their words and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Prayer must be rooted in who you are inside. God the Holy Spirit understands exactly what's happening with us, and He, without words, in His own way of communicating, makes our appeals known to the Father in a way that is shaped according to God's perfect will. This nonverbal communication by the Spirit in this text is not, by the way, as some suggest, a reference to speaking in tongues. 
or some heavenly prayer language or any other kind of unintelligible type of speech because according to Paul, these groanings here of the Spirit may not even be audible to us. Literally, the text says they're unspeakable, too deep for words. So he's not referring to speaking in tongues here. He's talking about the Spirit's ministry that continually assists us by silently shaping and reshaping our prayers and changing them in perfect accordance with the will of God. And I'm convinced that this is precisely what the Bible means when it challenges us and encourages us to pray at all times in the Spirit. In two places, Ephesians 6.18 and Jude 20. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, Jude writes, and pray in the Spirit. Why? Because prayer builds your faith. It keeps us looking to God with dependence. Without the Spirit's assistance in our prayer, it would be selfish and pointless. But by supporting our infirmity and by sustaining us in our ignorance and speaking for us in the midst of our inability, He disables our weakness. And that builds us up in the faith. Still, we need the Holy Spirit's assistance in another way, according to this text. The last thing. It's not merely to disable our weakness, but more importantly, to get us centered on the will of God rather than our own will. And only the Spirit can do that because He alone deciphers God's will. Verse 27. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This inter-Trinitarian communication that happens, it goes on between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, is kind of beyond our comprehension. But know this, nothing is hidden from any of them. Because they're all one, right? On occasion when I send an email, I've gotten back the message, return mail, host unknown. That never happens when we're spiritually online. Never happens. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have perfect communication between themselves. And that is what is so incredible about our capacity for prayer. Because the Spirit knows what the Father desires, and the Son only seeks to accomplish what the Father desires, and because all three live in us, James says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, right? And it can. And it does. When we finally understand the Spirit's ministry and His assistance in that light, our prayer life will take on new confidence. Yours will. Mine will. We'll know firsthand what Jesus meant when He said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's not a blank check for anything you want. What that means is if you ask God for anything, in God's will, you're going to have the answer to that. You will. 1 John 5, verse 14 and 15 says, and this is the boldness we have in God's presence, that if we ask God for anything that agrees with what He wants, He hears us. And if we know He hears us every time we ask Him, we know we have what we ask from Him. That's a promise. And that can only happen with the assistance of the Holy Spirit any prayer that the Spirit produces in us is a prayer that will see results. It's got God's guarantee on it. God only does what's in His will. 
So if you are asking, is, if what you're asking is God's will, the Spirit is interceding for it on your behalf, and God's doing something even though you haven't seen the answer yet. And it might take years. But God answers the diligent, persistent prayers of his people that are in his will. We have living proof all over this room. But you know what? If you're asking outside of God's will, the Spirit has to change your request because it's an illegitimate one, right? But to change your request, the Spirit has to change you. And sometimes that can make you groan. So God's always doing something. Rest assured, he's either doing what you ask or doing what he wants done by changing you so you will want what he wants. But there's no time when God's not doing something with your prayer. He's always doing something. It's like a puzzle. One piece of a puzzle by itself doesn't look like much, Tony Evans says, but plug it into the whole puzzle and you've got a great picture. Right? Ah, now comes verse 28. The one that people pass off as a cliche all the time. But look at verse 28 now in light of this context. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's why verse 28 is such a comfort and a confidence builder. You can't get to verse 28 without going first through verses 26 and 27. Right? The Spirit's assistance is the key to our prayers. It disables our weakness because He discerns God's will. And out of that, we can develop a new depth of understanding and desire to pray freely, to pray boldly, to pray simply. And that's not only what you and I long for, but that's what God desires of us as well. In light of all of this, the fact that the Spirit helps us to pray effectively. I want to leave you a thought-provoking question. Here's the thought. Is prayer the normal routine of your life? Would you consider it your lifestyle? Because Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Is it your normal way of life? Because as one man just wrote, that means it should be abnormal not to pray. Following me? It should be abnormal not to pray. Is that the way it is in your life? If you pray abnormally, don't be surprised if you hear from God abnormally. He says if you pray every now and then, you're going to hear from God every now and then. Paul says prayer should be so important that not to pray is the exception. But we all have it backwards. Prayer, generally we look at it as something that interrupts our regular schedule. We view prayer as interrupting our regular schedule. It should be that not praying interrupts our schedule. 
Prayer should intrude into your day. It should be your day. If we were to give prayer the importance God gives it, we would see prayer as our normal routine and everything else we do as interruptions to prayer. Because prayer is just carrying on a running conversation with the one who created you. Of all the talk about unanswered prayer that we've had this morning, the greater glory is to answered prayer when God's will and the Spirit's will and our prayers all gel together as one. Make prayer your lifestyle. Make it your lifestyle. Pray at all times in the Spirit.